Well, good morning. I'm Scott Burns. I'm the youth and family pastor here at Alliance. And I, I hope that you've had a great holiday weekend enjoying the freedom that we have in this country. And even though the sermon is starting a little bit uh, sooner than might be typical, I hope that you have already enjoyed the blessings of corporate worship. Jesus is the Son of God, risen from the dead so that, de- so that sin and death cannot separate us from God. That is a life-altering reality that should cause us to celebrate. And as we celebrate, it should fill us with joy. And I hope that you've already felt that this morning. There's absolutely nothing wrong with enjoying a hamburger on the grill on a holiday weekend that celebrates the freedom we have in this country. That's what I did. I threw some hamburgers on the grill and watched a little baseball. And it's good and it's right and it's reviving to come together as a body of believers and sing and celebrate the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. But my aim this morning is to remind us that some Christians are living under very different circumstances. And my aim this morning is to remind us that God would still be very good and salvation would still be very sweet, even if our own circumstances were not as ideal, which I believe could happen. While we are worshiping together in this place this morning, Pastor Saeed Abadini is likely sitting in an Iranian prison. His ultimate crime is that he is a Christian. He is probably in great pain because he is being beaten and tortured for his faith. His wife and his children have not been with him in years. Throughout the Middle East today, Christians are worshiping quietly or in some cases secretly because in many areas it is quite dangerous to gather as we have this morning. The current crisis involving ISIS is leading to the death of many and some say, some reports say that Christians have been easy and sought after targets. In Sudan, a young Christian mother is in the midst of an ongoing battle. It's difficult to keep up with the story. It keeps changing. I think at this particular point, she's in a safe place. But we know that at one point, she was eight months pregnant and shackled in jail with her other child because she was a Christian. Nigeria is a mess. Horrible things have happened there in recent days. North Korea is horribly brutal to Christians. And yet, and yet the gospel keeps flowing through that country and through these others even if evil regimes want it gone. Christians have not been eliminated because God can't be stopped. Amen. I could go on and on about countries where persecution is happening. There's at least 60 different countries in the world. And I could go on and on with stories of persecution because Christians have endured persecution since the beginning. Over the centuries, it has certainly ebbed and flowed at different times and in different locations but it has always existed. And most agree that our, our world is, is seeing an increase in Christian persecution. The Pope recently attempted to highlight this. I am not one who typically predicts the future. I don't read a lot of futurist-type writing. To my knowledge, I don't possess the gift of prophecy. But as I ponder our own country... And the cultural climate we now find ourselves in, 
Unless revival happens in this land, I think being a Christian in America will look very different in another 10 years. Massive shifts are taking place in this country, and there's, there's an increasing hostility towards Christian values. It seems that our society is less tolerant of us even speaking our values. And society seems to be attempting to shame us into silence. As one Christian leader, Oz Guinness, uh, has put it, our own culture seems to be heading toward an ABC future. Anything but Christianity. Guinness also says, we are now a country guided by opinion polls instead of a moral compass. And if you've, if you've noticed, the opinion polls don't seem to be leaning in Christian directions these days. The title of this message is Life Together Might Bring Persecution and Suffering. As Americans, we are out of touch with reality if we fail to remember that many of our brothers and sisters around the world are being terribly mistreated because of their faith. And even with our freedoms as Americans, we're foolish if we think that none of this in some form could ever happen to us. I think it's already happening in some ways. Being a Christian at Watauga High School is not an easy assignment. Being a Christian professor in a college town, it requires some wisdom. and It requires some sacrifice at times. Even if I'm wrong about being a Christian in America, if we're going to fulfill the Great Commission, we're going to have to send our children to dangerous places. So persecution is something that we should prepare ourselves for in one way or another. If you brought your Bibles, and I hope that you did, please turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. We're in a summer series that we've called Life Together. We want to be a gospel-centered community that ministers to and helps and encourages one another as we spread the good news to others. We've covered a lot of ground over the last eight weeks. We have seen that life together is sometimes messy because <coughs> excuse me, we all find ourselves still wrestling with sin. And I find myself wrestling with my voice. <coughs> Every one of us is a work of God in progress. Because that is true, there are going to be times where we have to confess sin to others or where we have to uh, seek forgiveness or extend forgiveness We've seen that forgiveness is not optional. Forgiven people forgive people. We've seen that persevering prayer is an essential component for a faith family like Alliance Bible Fellowship. We must be a praying people. We've learned that hospitality is a means of loving and caring for others. Dinners for eight have been going on, and if you've participated in that, I hope that has been a good experience. We have also seen that Life Together enables missions. Currently, we have a short-term team in China. The, the Dominican Republic team just returned last night. We have long-term missionaries from this church in other parts of the world, and we're a part of a denomination that supports missionaries all over the world. And our combined prayer and financial support is what makes those people able to go and share the gospel 
able to share the good news that Jesus saves, and some of them have gone to dangerous places. For the past two weeks, John Hanna, one of our elders, has helped us consider discipleship and how life together is what makes discipleship possible. The Christian life is not a self-help project. We aren't supposed to be lone rangers. Living the Christian life together and serving together is part of the God-ordained means that God uses that God uses to cause growth in our life. And again, sometimes this might be messy. Iron sharpens iron, and sparks fly when that happens. But the gospel serves as the glue that holds us together, even as iron is sharpening iron. Before a holy God, we are all equally needy. Before the cross, we are all equally humbled and saved. The book of 1 Peter was most likely written around A.D. 62, 63, give or take a little bit. Peter is the author, and his letters to a group of churches, maybe even 10-plus churches. These churches are either experiencing persecution or they are expecting it. Nero was most likely the Roman emperor at the time that Peter wrote this. And if you know anything about him, you know that he was particularly brutal to Christians. The theme of 1 Peter could be boiled down to this, hardship and holiness. Hardship and holiness. These two themes dominate the book. And in Peter's mind, they're related to each other. Holiness is necessary for enduring hardship, and hardship is a way that God makes us holy. We're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19 this morning. We are going to look at some other passages as well, but I invite you to stand as we read chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. This is the word of the Lord. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of, for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let, us, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. There are five imperatives or commands in this passage, and these five commands will serve as the five points of this message. The Holy Spirit speaks to us today through Peter, and he says this to us, don't be surprised by persecution. Don't suffer as a lawbreaker or a troublemaker. Don't be ashamed for suffering as a Christian. Glorify God when you suffer as a Christian and entrust your soul to our faithful creator God when you suffer. Peter's first point in this passage is that we should not be surprised by persecution. Now he's speaking very tenderly here. Peter addresses his readers as beloved. Peter loves and cares for these brothers and sisters, and he speaks to them, and he, he speaks to us. 
<coughs> excuse me, with affection. He speaks to, to them and to us with affection. Sometimes truth uh, is better received when it's brought to us tenderly. And so Peter's bringing this to us tenderly. Persecution, he says, should not surprise us. It should not be considered strange. For Americans, this is sobering. We have lived with such freedom that if widespread persecution were to come in some form or another, it would feel very strange, even though the Bible says that it isn't. Persecution is a standard response for many believers around the world. Consider Jesus' own words in John 15, 18 through 20. He said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. In John 16, Jesus warned his followers that some would die for following him. Consider Paul's words to Timothy. He, he said, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3, 12. Persecution is par for the course of the Christian life. Now, perhaps it would be helpful here to provide a few categories. Persecution is, as, as I'm defining it, marginalization suffering or martyrdom because of our faith, because of our faith. Not all mistreatment is persecution. If a man is rude to you in Walmart, it might just be because he's a jerk, not because you're being persecuted. So we need to be careful about how we use that word. Persecution, it can come in various degrees. You could be marginalized or mocked because you are a Christian, and that would be persecution. But that is not the same level of persecution as being beaten or tortured or killed for your faith. That's an entirely different level. And God has his purposes in persecution. Peter says in verse 12 that it is a fiery ordeal. And the language that he uses there is a refining fire that rids something of impurity. He uses very similar language in chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. Peter says this refining fire is part of our testing just as gold is refined by fire, so our faith is refined by hardship, even persecution. So if you're mocked at school or at work because you are a Christian, God will use that event to refine you. And if persecution comes, rather than surprise, our attitude should be one of rejoicing. That's verse 13. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 5, 11 and 12. He said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Peter fleshes this out for us a little bit more. He says in verse 13 that by suffering and rejoicing in persecution now, we are participating in the sufferings of Christ and we are further prepared for the abundant joy that will be ours when Christ's glory is seen at his return. So we have a promise within the command. The command is, is tough. We're not to be surprised by persecution. But the promise is what makes it easier to, to obey that command. The promise 
is that overflowing joy will be ours in heaven. Peter takes it further in verse 14. He says, if you are insulted by others because of your identification with Christ, then you can know that the Spirit of God rests upon you. In other words, we experience an assurance of faith and salvation when others express hatred toward our faith. That makes perfect sense. Evidence that we are a Christian and that God is in us comes when people notice that and revile us for it. So if you're praying for assurance of faith in your own life or in your child's life, it might come through a hateful remark from a non-Christian. If you have been praying that your child's faith would be evident to others, don't be surprised if they come home with a story about someone mocking them. The scripture says we are to rejoice in such a moment. Now, rejoicing and resting in the midst of persecution, that sounds very spiritual, but, but how do we do that practically? How do we do that? I think Peter has given us a clue in mentioning these promises. When we reflect on the promises of God, we are empowered to forsake the world and follow Christ. And we have examples to follow. Consider Moses, Hebrews eleven twenty six 26 says, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses walked away from much to follow God, but he was looking to a greater reward. The money of Egypt was pocket change compared to the riches of Christ. And so he looked past all of that and he looked towards the kingdom. Revelation 2.10 promises that those who are faithful to death will receive the crown of life. And many saints have endured martyrdom for that very crown. Hebrews 10.34 speaks of believers who joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property since they knew that they had a better possession and an abiding one. That's how they were able to endure such a thing. They were looking beyond that to something greater and lasting. We endure persecution and we can even rejoice in it by looking to the promises that are ours in Christ. Persecution should not surprise us. Jesus told us it would come. And if it comes or when it comes, we are to rejoice. And we can do that by focusing on the promises of God instead of the present circumstances. And we are to realize that it is God's will. It is God's will. And that he will use it to refine us and make us more holy. If persecution were to increase in America in any form, it would have a refining effect on the church in America. Persecution might free the American church from its Sunday morning rock concert entertainment addiction. We'd want more substance instead of silliness. It might help us be freed from the prosperity gospel that's straight from the pit of hell. And it might eliminate a lot of churchgoers who are far more interested in comfort than cross-carrying. Too many American Christians consider themselves to be super spiritual because they've completed six Bethmore Bible studies or they've gone on a couple of short-term trips that they self-funded or because when they come to worship on Sunday morning and the lights kick in and the fog machine starts rolling, they raise their hands and feel really close to God. I don't really like fog machines. Boone is a fog machine. 
So if you can worship like that in the midst of boon fog, I'm fine with it. But if you need the fog in a service, I have a problem with it. There are Christians in other parts of the world who've never experienced any of that. They don't even have a complete Bible, much less Beth Moore studies. But their house was burned down. They were beaten. And they still walked with Jesus the next day. I wrestle with this. Every week I sit in a temperature-controlled office with wood floors surrounded by books. I have a salary and benefits. Occasionally, I get to go to a conference and hear very gifted preachers. I can feel very spiritual in those moments. But sometimes I fear that it's just making me soft. I find myself praying more and more, Lord, keep me close to you even if all of this is taken away. Make me more like those believers in other places, those believers who are willing to suffer for your name. We should not be surprised if we suffer for being a Christian. If they hated Jesus, they are going to hate us. But there is a suffering that a Christian should avoid. And this is Peter's next point. He says that we should not suffer as a lawbreaker or a troublemaker. There's a difference between suffering for Christ because we are faithful to him and suffering because we are stupid. As long as the laws of this land do not violate scripture, we are to obey them. Peter makes this very point in chapter 2. The freedom that we have in Christ does not give us the authority to set our own speed limit. Now, I acknowledge that there could be some laws now or there could be some laws in the future that, that might make obeying the law and, and, and following Christ hard to reconcile. I'll give you that. But in many areas, this is not complicated. Pastor John MacArthur recalls speaking with a persecuted pastor who lived under communism in the former Soviet Union. MacArthur asked him if, if believers found it difficult to obey a communist government. And the pastor replied that they only wanted to suffer for the gospel, for the gospel. And so they sought to be obedient citizens wherever they could. A far less dramatic example, but, but perhaps still helpful, is the teenager who sat in my office a few years ago. This teen was complaining that his teacher was persecuting him in class. He was failing the class, and he attributed that to the fact that he had spoken of Jesus at one point. As I talked with him, I found out that this teen was not doing his homework. He was not studying for the test. He wasn't giving it any effort at all. He was failing because he wasn't working. He was not failing because he'd spoken of Christ. If you get fired from your job because you do it poorly, that isn't persecution. If you lose your driver's license due to too many speeding tickets or a DUI or some other violation, that isn't persecution. That's the government doing what the government has the right to do, bringing about justice. So the Holy Spirit says to us in verse 15 through Peter, don't suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Now that last one is interesting. Meddling in other people's business is put in the same verse as murder. Why? Peter's covering the entire spectrum of reasons to not suffer. We should not suffer as a lawbreaker or a troublemaker. So if we find ourselves suffering, it is good and it is right to examine why we are suffering. Is this suffering, this persecution, because I stood strong for my faith 
Or is this suffering something that I've brought on myself with sinful actions? If that is the case, let us not label it persecution. Now, the third command Peter gives is to not be ashamed for suffering as a Christian. And tied right to that is the fourth command, to glorify God when we suffer as a Christian. Paul said the same thing in Romans 1, 16. He said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The message that God saves sinners through faith in the atoning work and resurrection of Christ is nothing to be ashamed of. It's good news that saves. But there will be people who will attempt to shame us for saying such a thing. And standing for Jesus might bring suffering, but we are to glorify God when we suffer as a Christian. Let me flesh this out a little bit more. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, 24 to 27, that he was whipped five times. He was beaten with rods three times. Those are shaming actions that the world used to try and silence Paul. Jesus was crucified. That wasn't an honorable thing to have happen to you. The world would seek to shame those who speak and live the gospel because the world hates the gospel. But we are not to be ashamed by their shaming actions. Jesus was not ashamed to save us from our sin. But for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame so that we could be saved, Hebrews 12, 2. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel because it is how people are saved from their sin. Peter was not ashamed of the gospel. He now calls on others to not be ashamed of the gospel. But this is where the rubber meets the road. We have lived in a free country, and Christianity has been culturally accepted for most of this country's existence, and it has been enjoyable, no doubt. But I, I personally believe that that's changing right in front of us. When Christians speak and apply the gospel today, there's an anger that rises among many, and they vocally attack that person. Unless revival breaks out, I really believe that Christians will be more shamed in the future here in America. Now, I hope and I pray for revival. I would love to be wrong on this one. But I'm starting to try and prepare myself for what it might be like if that doesn't happen. Because I don't want to be ashamed of my Savior, even if I'm mocked or ridiculed for my beliefs and how I apply them. So John Hanna called us to make disciples over the last two weeks. That's an aspect of life together. And if we're going to be obedient to that call, we will have to speak and apply truth. When we do that, we have the promise that some will repent and believe and be saved. And we have the promise that some will not. And we cannot let the haters silence us. Because if they do, then how will the others hear the gospel and be saved? We're going to have to endure shame as unashamed people. 
in speaking these two commands to, to not be ashamed but to glorify God, Peter goes on to flesh out uh, the refining effects of persecution for believers and the judgment of God on unbelievers. He does this in verses 17 and 18. They're a little bit tricky. Verse 18 is an Old Testament uh, quotation. It's, it's actually the Septuagint's version of, of Proverbs 11.31. The Septuagint was the Greek translation of what we call our Old Testament there's maybe some other Old Testament allusions uh, in those two verses. I'm not going to dig into that right now. Let me just say this. Verse 17 and 18 is saying that God is just and he will carry out judgment on sin. He has done that in a saving way through Jesus for all who repent and believe. But for those who reject Jesus, eternal punishment awaits. And that will be far worse than any persecution believers might experience today. God purifies his people through hardship, even persecution, so that they can be holy. Christianity isn't easy believism. True Christianity will take you through refining fires and hardships, and that might include persecution. But the pain that we might feel in the midst of God's refining purposes brought on us through sinners is small compared to the judgment God will bring upon unbelievers. Let me say that again. The pain that we might feel in the midst of God's refining purposes brought on us through sinners is small compared to the judgment God will bring upon unbelievers. So Peter says in verse 19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is our job description. If persecution comes in any form, if persecution comes, we are to do good while entrusting our soul to our faithful God. So entrust your soul to our faithful God when you suffer. Following Jesus may require you to give up the acceptance of your neighbor or your coworker. Following Jesus may require you to lose a promotion or not be popular at school. If that were to happen, you are to still do good. If things were to get really bad in this country or a country that God might send you to to help fulfill the Great Commission, you might have to give up property or your very body, but you can entrust your soul to a faithful creator and you will not be disappointed. You will not be disappointed. If you had to give up your very body, you would join the many martyrs before you and you would be included among those we read about in Revelation 6. You would know God's faithfulness even as sinful men took your life. Our example for this and our the, the power to do this, it's found in Jesus Christ. In Acts 2, Peter stood and he preached the good news. And in verse 23, he said that Jesus was killed by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him up. And when Jesus died at the hands of lawless men, his final words were, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And the father was so faithful, faithful to his son, raising him from the dead and seating him on a throne. And he was so faithful to us, extending eternal life to those who believe. Speak the gospel. Apply 
the gospel without fear because you know your soul is secure. This is the central point of application this morning. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be surprised if you suffer for the gospel. Jesus suffered to bring it. And if we are to continue carrying the gospel to our neighbor or to someone in an unreached people group, we might have to suffer too. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us to be faithful no matter what. Help us to live life together as a church in such a way that we are prepared for hate from the world. Help us to parent our kids in such a way that they, as believers themselves, are prepared for that. Help us to do children's ministry and youth ministry and women's ministry and men's ministry. And help us to do these things in such a way that we are faithful to your word no matter what happens. Help us to entrust our souls to you and continue to do good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.